This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne-wy-giving. And let's turn, if we could, please, to Matthew chapter 3. Now, I know this is going to be a little bit jarring because we've, we've followed a nice steady progression all the way from Matthew chapter 5 at the beginning of our red letter studies all the way into Matthew chapter 14. And if we can cover this quickly enough, we'll be back in chapter 14 after we cover this part. But here's the thing. When we began these studies last January or February, I believe, when we began these studies, we began in Matthew chapter 5, and the reason for that was this, and which is the reason why we began calling it Red Letter Studies, okay? Because we were going to focus on the teachings, the specific teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we began in chapter 5, and chapter 5, 6, and I think it maybe a little bit into chapter 7, all of that was Sermon on the Mount type stuff. And then after we got through all those really dense chapters that were packed with red letter teachings of our Lord. And we got into some chapters right after that, after the Sermon on the Mount, where it's like, oh, wow, there's only two sentences in this whole chapter that are red. Everything else is black and it's narrative. And as I continued preparing and studying, that's when it hit me. And I shared it in a Bible study, I think that very same night that, wait a second, you can't, you can't rightly separate the spoken teachings of our Lord from the life that he lived. They have to be taught together. And that's, uh, I personally am I'm persuaded of this. I'm not saying it's rock solid, absolute doctrinally on the money, but it's my personal conviction that that's why the gospels are in fact the gospels and that there is not any book of Jesus to be found uh, in in the Bible anywhere, in the New Testament anywhere, like you've got, you know, the the general epistle of James or the, the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the church in Ephesus or something like that. You know, you've got books by Paul or these letters that were written by Paul and you've got letters written by Peter. And you've got letters written by these other apostles and they're easy to study because it's just boom, you go right to them and there they are. And the teachings make sense and they're all in their place and it's orderly and it's nice but if you're going to study the teachings of our Lord, you have to go into the Gospels and you have to dig those teachings out of their historical context. And if you make the mistake, and I'm saying you generally, not you, anyone in particular, or even suggesting that anyone's been trying this here, but there are people that have. If you make the mistake or you take on the endeavor of, well, I'm going to go into the Gospels and I'm going to extract all the stuff that Jesus actually taught with his mouth. And I'm going to put that into its own document. I'm going to put that into its own book. And we're going to call it the book of Jesus or the teaching of Jesus. Well, you've really sterilized a lot of what was in there because you will have removed it from its historical narrative. And because a lot of the lessons that we've been learning from about chapter seven or eight forward have been lessons that are learned by what Jesus did, not just by what Jesus said. 
and you have to learn them together. Because if you take the one away from the other, then you're pulling it apart, you're sterilizing it, you're losing its historical context, you're losing its situational context. And so when I realized that, well, it was already too late to go back to Matthew chapter 3, which is where the very first occurrences of Jesus' teaching were. But when we opened that up this morning, or this afternoon, earlier this afternoon, over at Whispering Chase and began teaching it over there, then it's like, it occurs to me, we should go ahead and backtrack and cover that here in the main Bible study. And so, Matthew chapter 3, and... Now the teachings of the cheat or the words of Jesus don't begin until chapter 15 or, or until uh, verse 15. And so we're going to read through the text here at the beginning of the chapter, get us into our situation, and then that'll bring us to where he begins. So let's do Matthew chapter 3. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the core of John the Baptist's ministry. And we've talked about John Baptist recently because his ministry came to an end in chapter 14. Herod had him beheaded in order to please uh, some women that he had an inappropriate relationship with or one woman that he had an inappropriate relationship. And it was, it was just politics and it was bad and it was corrupt as could be. But here, John the Baptist's ministry is about to hit its pinnacle. Right here in chapter 3. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That was John's ministry, to be the forerunner and the harbinger of the coming of the Messiah. And he was in full stride at this point, telling them and doing exactly what had been prophesied concerning him. In verse 4, he continues, The same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins. That means he had a leather belt on. And his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. So this man wasn't some obscure, unknown, crazy prophet out there with wild hair unknown by anybody. This was a man who, his, first of all, his ministry had been foretold, and now he was on the scene, he was, he was fulfilling it, and it was getting people's attention, and they were coming out to hear, and more than that, he was baptizing them. That's where he gets the title Baptist. Okay, and it had nothing to do with the Christian denominations that are known under the label of Baptist today. Is he was called Baptist because that's what he did. He baptized people. He prophesied and he warned and he preached about the he preached the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a different gospel than the gospel of Christ. The gospel of the kingdom of heaven was exactly what he said. Repent, turn from your evil ways. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is like verily at the threshold of your door. That's how close it is. Because it was. Because Jesus was alive and already walking among them, though he had not begun his ministry yet. And so chapter 3 actually shows us the first of what, would, uh, what you could consider two overlaps. The beginning, or actually, we could call it one overlap. It's the beginning of the overlap between John the Baptist's ministry and our Lord Jesus Christ's ministry. It begins here in chapter 3. Let's read on. 
So his meat was locusts and wild honey. And he went and out, then went out to him, Jerusalem, all Judea, and the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, he called them snakes. This was gentle John, meek and mild, right? Right? Generation of vipers, he called them. Generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So first a rebuke, because they needed it. Because they were Pharisees and Sadducees, which became, these were people that were so corrupt in their religious observation that they became living bywords for hypocrisy. Whenever we think of hypocrisy or whenever one group of believers uh, criticizes another group of believers, they always call them Pharisees. You're a bunch of Pharisees because they're calling them hypocrites. So he says, bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. So first he rebukes them, then he instructs them. And he says in verse nine, think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And, and that is, there's a whole teaching in there also, but I don't want to get lost in the details of this. It's very tempting. In verse 10 he goes on. Now also now, or and now also, the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose hand, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now that was John's sermon and uh, reproof towards the hypocrites and he was baptizing people that were of a sincere heart and wanted to be delivered of their own wickedness. These were Jews under the law of Moses. Jesus had not yet died. The beginning of the new covenant or the New Testament had not yet come into effect. So remember, as we talked about at the very beginning of our red letter studies, these were teachings to Jews still under the law because that was the only way to be if you were right with God in those days. But then in verse 13, this is where Jesus comes onto the scene. And this is this was a turning point. This is a major milestone in, in the history, not only of Israel, but of the world. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee. And comest thou to me? This was perplexing to John. Here was John on the scene according to prophecy and in the spirit of Elijah, he was there and he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom and he was preaching repentance and he was rebuking and reproving powerful religious leaders of that day, men that had connections and who knew people and could really bring a person's life to grief. But he also had a tremendous following. And so that probably shielded him as well as the providence of the Lord. And maybe it was just the providence of the Lord by way of a large following. But here was John doing his job. And then Jesus comes on the scene to be baptized by John. And John was like, wait a second. I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. 
And you're coming to me for baptism? It was a dissonance in John's mind. It was a real cognitive dissonance that it didn't make sense to him because John was aware of John's own need. And John knew who was standing in front of him. This was Messiah. This was the one who for 700 years had been, for at least 700 years, it was 700 years since Isaiah had prophesied of him. But this was the one that had been foretold from the beginning of the human race. All the way back when Adam and Eve first sinned and God prophesied about how there was going to come one that was going to crush the serpent's head and the serpent was going to bruise his heel. And that was a foretelling of the, of the crucifixion. And so John was faced with this seeming contradiction in necessity standing right before him. Jesus is here to be baptized by me. What's up with that? This is completely backwards, Jesus. But look at what Jesus says in verse 15. Jesus answering him said unto him, suffer it to be so now. In other words, allow this, John. Go ahead and let it happen. Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. So what's the import of this? Now, this is the very first words that Jesus utters in Matthew's gospel. Okay, um, They're not necessarily the first words that he actually uttered in his teachings, perhaps in the other Gospels, but in Matthew's Gospel, it's the very first teaching that we come across. What is the lesson here? Well, there's a couple of them. There's a couple of very profound lessons here. Jesus, who was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, right, according to the Apostle Paul's, how he described it later on. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet knew no sin. Jesus had never sinned. He had never offended the Father. He walked in perfect communion and harmony with the Father from day one. Actually, there was no day one, actually, because the Son, God the Son, who is the Word made flesh, is alive from eternity past into eternity future, having neither mother nor father nor beginning of days nor end of life and all of that. But he didn't was it manifest as the living Son of God until he was born into the world. But he was always around. Right? We understand that because God is eternal. Eternal means more than immortal. Eternal means you've always been around, not just you'll always be around. You see the different directions that that goes in. Eternal is uh, exact, it's exactly that. It's eternal. It's from all time past into all time into eternity, transcends time, and so on. Here was Jesus, has never known sin, was in fact the Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, all of these titles, pure, righteous, holy, innocent in the most profound senses of the word, submitting to the baptism of repentance. What's the very first lesson we learn from our Lord? Humility. The very first lesson. Humility. He didn't need to do this. Jesus did not need to be baptized. Jesus did not need to uh, have any sins washed away from him because he had none. But for the sake of humility and, as he says in his own words, to fulfill all righteousness, because there was something being demonstrated in all of this, okay? He submitted to it. And so verse 16 goes on afterwards. He said, and Jesus, when he was baptized went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God 
descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, do we have any doubts about the Trinity of God anymore? Look in these two verses, 16 and 17, and what do we see happening? We see the Son of God going into the water, coming out of the water. The Son of God. This is God the Son. It's not God the Father. It's not God the Holy Spirit. This is God the Son. And He's coming up out of the water, and then the heavens are opened, and then the Spirit of God, that's God the Holy Ghost, descending from heaven and lighting or landing upon Jesus in the form of a dove. It's not saying that the Holy Ghost is a dove, okay? He's not a glorified pigeon flapping down from the skies and making a mess. But he came down in the form of a dove. Perhaps it was because that form is what best fit his nature in a way that anyone observing and capable of seeing was capable of understanding. Because doves are always associated with peace and with restoration and with a gentle spirit and things like that. If you think back to the Old Testament, the flood of Noah and how the floodwaters covered the earth, everything, well, it, well, everything that wasn't on the ark that was an animal or a human being died, okay? And uh, except for the fishes, obviously, they would have continued to pro pro proliferate. They would have been just fine. But um, the waters covered the earth, and as the waters began to recede, what did Noah do? Noah sent out, was it a dove, I believe? It sent out a dove to try to find a place to land that wasn't on the ark. And so I think that it, he sent the dove out three times. Twice it came back, but the third time it found some place to land. And so that meant there was dry land somewhere and they were able to uh, eventually land the ark and depart. So the dove has always been associated with good, peaceful, gentle events or attitudes or things along those lines. And so here comes the Holy Spirit of God descending out of heaven in the form of a dove to land upon and then enter into the Son of God. And then the voice of God the Father, that's three, speaking from out of heaven and saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's not the only time that he would do that either. I think up on Mount Transfiguration, which we haven't gotten to yet in, in the course of our studies, that's coming up. Um, God has said that on more than one occasion. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So you tell me, okay, if you're a oneness believer, if we have a oneness believer in here, how does that reconcile to this text? Was Jesus a lying ventriloquist down there on the earth throwing his voice up to heaven for, uh, to make it sound like someone in heaven was speaking down to him on earth? And, and then what about the Holy Spirit coming down from the skies? How do, we, how do we say that they're all the same person when all three are sensibly, separately, evidently present in one place? So is God a trinity? Best believe it. Well, then how can he be one? He is. Well, then how can he be three? He is. And it comes back around to the same thing. And I love talking about this because it just, it just blows breakers in people's minds. They just, it just sparks fly and it's like trying to reconcile, wrap our little finite minds around an infinite God. And I just laugh. I sit back and laugh because it's like, keep on trying, man. You won't get it because none of us do. And that's the wonderful thing about it is that we don't have to. Understand, again, and I know we've taught this before, and it's, 
And it's a, it's maybe a repetitive lesson, but sometimes we need to be reminded. Okay. Because we, as human beings, we love to figure things out and we love to think that we have something nailed down when God will not be nailed down by the human mind. He can't be. He's infinite. So is he one or is he three? Yes. We understand him as a trinity in large part due to verses like this. This isn't the only, this isn't the only couple of verses behind it. There wasn't a whole doctrine of, of the Trinity built on two shoestring verses of Scripture. The Bible all from the Old Testament all through the New Testament, from Genesis all the way through Revelation, supports the doctrine of the Trinity, even though the word Trinity does not occur in Scripture, doesn't make any difference. Neither does the word homosexuality. That doesn't occur anywhere in Scripture, yet the concept is still found in historical accounts of Sodom, Gomorrah, and other places, things like that, Romans chapter 1 and so forth. I know that was a negative example, but we read of the Trinity all throughout the Word. Jesus, God the Son, came up out of the water. God the Holy Ghost came down from heaven and entered into Him. And God the Father spoke out of heaven and said, This is my Son. And oh, by the way, I'm very pleased with Him. And so there's a major lesson about the Trinity right there. But then there's a greater lesson here in, here in verse 16. All right, in verse 15, we learn the lesson of Jesus's humility there in verse 15. And then in verse 16, we learn. Or we get an idea, rather, of how serious a need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is. For the life of a believer. Because dig this, okay? Let's read it again. Jesus, when he was baptized, went straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Okay, and in other gospel accounts, it even describes it a little bit more deeply. Um, uh, I want to say that it actually spells it out that entered in unto him. But, you know, in one moment, the Spirit of God was visible upon him as a dove and then the next moment boom gone but it wasn't gone it entered into him if jesus needed the holy ghost how much more do we jesus who had never sinned who had never known sin, had never been in rebellion against god had never displeased god if he needed the comfort and the power of the indwelling of the holy spirit how much more do we that had to be pulled out of our ditches of sin i need the holy ghost I need the Holy Ghost every day. And I'm, I'm careful not to misrepresent the importance of this. I, I don't want to exaggerate it, okay? But neither do I want to take away from it. Because, well, one might ask, do I need the Holy Ghost in order to be saved? Well, no. But it is the Holy Ghost that draws upon the hearts of men and women and convicts them and first brings them to God and makes them aware of their need for salvation. The first time that a man or a woman or, or a child for that matter ever hears the gospel of Jesus Christ preached, it is the Holy Spirit working on their heart to open their eyes and bring them to that place where they're like, I am lost and I really need to be saved. I need forgiveness. I need a change on the inside of me. That is the job of the Holy Ghost or one of several jobs that he has. And so, yes, we need him to draw him to the cross. Then it takes our acceptance of Christ and the forgiveness that comes with that. That's what delivers us from our sins. But then after, okay, well, then there's where the question comes in. Well, do I need the Holy Ghost in order to get to heaven? 
Well, no. But you're going to have a lot harder time of it if you don't have the Holy Ghost. Because as we have taught many times, preached many times, as I have experienced myself and as most folks in this church tonight have also experienced for themselves the Holy Ghost living inside of a person, a believer, is both comfort, that's, that's, that's the part that feels good, and it's the same kind of context as pulling up that big fluffy blanket over you on a cold winter night is. It's the same thing. It really is. It's just like that, only on a much deeper uh, and internal, spiritual type of level, okay? He is comfort. And this is the most important part. He is power. Because God living in you, that is power. You can't get any more power than that. There's no greater power than that, than God living in you. And it's not your power, and that's the good thing. It's like you don't have to maintain that, right? God maintains himself. You just have to maintain your walk with God and your closeness with God. And don't let anything drive, excuse me, drive a wedge between you and God. And so the lesson here of verse 16, or of verse 15, is the humility of Christ. The lesson of verse 16 is we need the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit of God. And as we've said many times, Jesus knew that his disciples would need the Spirit of God. He knew that they, his, his own disciples would need the Spirit of God, and that's why he told them, stay in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And then you can scatter abroad and take the word with you, and that's what they did. And persecution actually became a tool of that. But let's move on. So we get all of that just out of verses 15 and 16 and 17. Support for the Trinitarian nature of our God Okay, yet all in complete and perfect harmony, one with one another. And then the lesson of Christ's humility, a model for us to follow, to remain humble. And there really is no room for pride in the believer at all whatsoever. None whatsoever, because what do any of us have to boast about in light of eternity? We were all born in sin. Every one of us, we were born on the wrong side of the fence. And all that was because of Adam original sin, the curse, all of that stuff. Okay, fine. So we can't boast about our pedigree and our heritage. Who even cares about that anyway? America is supposed to be the most liberated nation in the world from that kind of thinking. You know, White supremacy, black supremacy, any kind of ethnic supremacy, or, or yeah, I'm all about the country of my ancestors. Why? <laughs> Why? What was so great about it? You know, and not that I'm trying to put forth you know, some hyper-nationalistic point of view either. The point is humility. Because wherever we came from and whatever our ancestry and our lineage was, whatever color of skin we are, or whatever gender we are, or whatever political affiliation we are, whatever anything we were, all of us are, were united by a common condition is that we were lost. We needed Jesus. And then... We received Jesus. And then those of us that have received Jesus have been united by an entirely different condition that has nothing to do with race, color, creed, nationality, or anything else. We have been, we have been united by a common condition that we've been born again. And we are now of one family, aren't we? We are now of the same nation 
being the nation that he, that Paul described over in one of his letters later on in the New Testament where he calls us, where he says we are a royal priesthood. He says we are a holy nation. A holy nation. It doesn't matter what color skin. We're united by the blood of Christ. And so we're all of one nation. And so black churches, white churches, what, what's that all about? A church should be accurately, a church should be uh, an accurate representation of the community that it's in. So, all right, we're, 90, we're 97% white in Cheyenne, so maybe that's not the best example to use, but we're not all white in this church. We might be 97% white in this church, but who cares? The blood of Christ makes every one of us of one nation. And so color, once again, that whole distinction in Christ is completely torn down and thrown away. And he deals, Paul the Apostle deals with that in much greater depth over in his letter to the church at Rome. But that's what we get from the beginning. This is the beginning of Jesus's ministry and it's the beginning of the end of John's ministry. And that's not a sad thing. And I've been very careful to make sure that we understood that in early in uh, early in chapter 14, when we talked about the death of John, it's, it wasn't a, an occasion to mourn. This is the way it was planned. This is the way it had to happen. This was all according to the grand scheme and the grand plan of Almighty God. John was going to come first. John was about six months older than Jesus, I think. About six months older than Jesus. John was born six months ahead of Jesus. John began his ministry about six months ahead of that, I think, too preached and taught, told them repent because the kingdom of heaven is like practically right here. That's what his message was. And he baptized people with the baptism of repentance. And then when the time was right, Jesus comes on the scene and it's like John was passing a torch as he took Jesus down into the water to baptize him with a baptism he didn't even need. And he came back up out of the water. It's like he was handing him a torch and saying, my job's pretty much done. And from here on out, my ministry is going to continue to decrease over the next one, two, three years, however long it was until he was killed. I'm not sure what the time frame was between uh, how much time there was between Jesus' baptism and John's death. But John's ministry was now going to diminish and decrease and I imagine that there were followers and disciples of John that were beginning to move over to Jesus's camp, even though that was the same camp in the eternal sense. But as far as who they were going out to see and to hear and John didn't just quit. It's not like, OK, I baptized Jesus. Woo, my work is over. It's retirement time. I'm going to go back to my farm and I'm going to kick back in my shack and I'm going to maw down and crunch down on some locusts and wild honey. Mm -mm. Doesn't really sound too great at all. I'm all, I'm all about the wild honey. That stuff's good stuff, but you can keep your locusts. I think I'd rather eat tree bark than locusts. I just, I, I can't get, I can't, I can't get the whole eating live bugs thing. That's just, I haven't lived in that world. It might come to that one day, but I hope not while I'm alive. Anyway, but he didn't just do that. That's just it. That's the point. He didn't just say, okay, I baptized the Lord now, and, the, and now it's a handoff, and I'm done. I'm going to go into retirement. I'm just going to kick back, write some books, publish some manuscripts, and, and play darts. No. John continued faithful 
doing what he had been ordained to do until the day they took his head from his shoulders. There's a lesson in that for us as well. But this was the beginning. This was the beginning of the end of John's work and the beginning of the beginning of Jesus's work. And Jesus's ministry would simply go on to increase from there. Now, there's more in chapter four. Maybe we'll grab that next week. We probably should for the sake of continuity. I don't want to I don't want to keep ping ponging back and forth between two uh, different parts of Scripture. This one's out of sync, I know. But I didn't want to just leave this alone. I wanted to go back and pick this up because these lessons right here from the tail end of chapter three are actually really important lessons and are good for us to know and to remember, to appropriate and to put into practice. Now, if we go into chapter four next week, be at the will of the Lord, then we're going to we're going to go into verse four. I'll just give you a sneak peek of that lesson. Verse four, where Jesus says it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now that's a huge lesson right there. And then that is encapsulated within a much bigger lesson about the temptation of our Lord by the devil here in that chapter. And the devil tried to corrupt Jesus and completely failed. In fact, Jesus won that like a total boss is what he did. I think as the expression goes. And he walked away from that almost like somebody in an action movie walking away from an explosion. That's how big Jesus won in chapter 4. But at this time, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. We're at 35 minutes. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash giving.